0: Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 54 of the podcast, the topic is the future of augmented reality. Our guest is Ori Inbar, CEO and founder of AugmentedReality.org, the organizer of AWE, the most, uh, world's most essential AR-VR conference since 2010. In this conversation, we talk about community building and the no longer so embryonic AR-VR space, the emergence of spatial computing, the augmented reality expo, and we discuss AR-VR venture capital, exciting and emerging use cases and form factors, market size, mobile AR, and COVID's impact on remote tech. We explore the world in 2030 and the threats that the world is facing. Ori, how are you today? Hi, Tran. Good to be here. I'm awesome. That is good to hear. Ori, I'm super excited to talk about augmented reality. I wanted to... um to just uh, check a little bit with you i, I know that you've worked uh, at sap uh, and uh, you are so you've very steeped in kind of enterprise software but then you moved very deeply into augmentation and experience and you've been running a community and a conference uh, the awe conference on uh, augmented reality um, and your background is from Tel Aviv. I know you you had a computer science degree from there. And, and then you spent some time at, at INSEAD. Now, this is what I know. What has shaped Ori? And, and why are you, from all of these things, so suddenly so passionate about augmented reality? Where did this come from?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I'm really excited to be here as well. And uh, happy to talk with you about... My favorite topic, which is augmented reality. Um, my, my background is in computer science and cinema. That's that's what I double majored at the university, and it was kind of a way to look for how you combine technology with the creative aspects of life. And uh, I was always searching for what what can actually make it work. Uh, so you know, spent some time at a few startups in the nineties. Uh, one was acquired by SAP, and that's where I spent six years leading their uh, internet strategy. Uh, where we took our startup product and brought it to 40,000 of the biggest companies in the world. That, that was really exciting. Uh, but at some point, it felt like I want to go back to my roots and look for uh, something that we can start from scratch. And in 2007, uh, I was starting to kind of to look around and all of a sudden discovered this idea that you can mix virtual content with the real world and, and then I discovered, actually, it's not a new thing. It's, it's a concept called augmented reality, which has been around for about 40 years at the time. But it wasn't, I was blown away. It was hidden in labs, and most people have never heard about it. So the mission became to find a way to bring it to everyone. And that was pretty early. That was even before the iPhone was launched. So there was really no uh, avenue to, to do it. Um, so I started a blog, which became very popular in the AR community. And soon after, started a company called Augmento, which developed AR games. Um, not not so different than Pokemon Go, which we all know, and is a huge hit now. But at the time, probably was a bit too early. But at the same time, we also built some hardcore AR tech in in the team, and uh, that uh, that company actually eventually was acquired by Apple, and that team became the foundation for the AR Kit. A uh, team, which is the uh, the platform that Apple has for augmented reality, so that was a really nice loop closure. But at the same time, back in twenty ten, I felt like it's such an early stage in this industry. Uh, so I joined forces with a few other entrepreneurs. There were probably maybe ten or twenty companies in the space working in this, but a bunch of universities. So you know, a couple hundred people got together in a room, talked about some ideas, some concepts, no real products. And um, and uh, and then you know that conference became uh, gradually uh, the conference for the AR industry and later also VR the VR industry. And uh, today it's you know it's a conference that spans uh, three continents: US, Europe, Asia, uh, and has almost ten thousand attendees with two hundred and fifty exhibitors. So it's really kind of a, a cross section of the entire industry from hardware to software and to uh, applications and use cases, Uh, and it kind of gave me this incredible network that um, I felt, you know, we need to put to use. So after, you know, many startups reached out for advice in 2016, decided to start a uh, venture fund focused on investing in early stage AR companies. That was actually the first VC uh, focused on, on AR specifically you know, raised a small fund, it made uh, 15 investments so far. And that's been kind of a great way to um, to also see, you know, how the money works in this industry. Um so so that was kind of the journey that leads us to twenty twenty, which is pretty remarkable, remarkable year for, you know, anyone in the world, but I think especially for AR and VR.
0: I love your summary. Yours was much better than mine, as expected. So I'm, I'm happy. That's why I set this up with a, a bad summary over the last so you could give sure. me a, a good summary. Um, Ori, let's start with the first thing you said, which is you were shocked to see that AR was 40 years old but had been in the lab. Now, I'm sure this is not the only technology that somehow got stuck in the lab, but what would you say with your experience and your networks and and you know this experience in 2010, what is the main reason that it got stuck in the lab? So, you know,
1: 1968 was a, a really important year in computing. Uh, it's when the mother of all demos was presented, which most of us know was the first John time Goldbart. that we saw a personal yep. computer with a mouse and collaboration and even access to a network, which wasn't even the internet yet. Um, And, you know, of course, that led to the next 40, 50 years of personal computing. But what's crazy is that during that same year, another demo was presented uh, by Ivan Sutherland. And and that was basically the first example of spatial computing, of an augmented reality headset um, that allowed you to see things just like you see them in, in the real world. So when you move your head around an object, it behaves like a real object in the real world. So when you think about it, you know, the same year we had these two technologies: the two-dimensional PC computing that we we know and, and use today, and spatial computing. So how come history decided to take that that path that is actually less intuitive, uh, less natural? And the simple answer is that the tech wasn't there. Um, you know, you, you ask uh, some of the people that were actually there at the time. you know, Tom Furness, which is considered the grandfather of VR, and he would say, you know, the tech was simply not there. Displays, the computing power, uh, the interaction techniques, uh, just to illustrate that headset that I mentioned in in 68 was was also called uh, the Sword of Damocles, because it was this huge contraption hanging around above your head, uh, threatening to to kill you at any moment, And uh, and you know the computer was actually pretty close to being ready. The personal computer being ready, um, you know, to start companies like you know Microsoft and Apple. So so that was really the kind of the, the high level uh, problem. And, and since then, you know, we've seen many iterations where the technology was shrunk, that you know uh, different interesting use cases uh, that seemed very important that that came about. Um, But still it was, you know, back in 2007, eight, nine, it was still very bulky. And there was no device that allowed the masses to actually experience AR.
0: Ori, I'm struck by one thing, which is you and these 200 people must have a tremendous imagination because most of us lethals, you know, we walk around and we try a VR headset And then we shake our head and say, maybe next year. How is it that you had a very different experience, even back in 2010 and and before? Because I will admit to this. I am a very recent convert to AR, and I am certainly not yet a convert to VR. For the reason that, you know, for the longest time, you know, no, no matter how much I try, I remember going to a... A VR uh, kind of bar slash experience center in London only just last year. And we were a bunch of people at a uh, investment conference and we had rented out the space and we were in there for a couple of hours. But I just left and I thought, yeah, this is all nice, but I, I'm not feeling it. Why am I so uh, hard to convince?
1: Well, I think first of all, there's you know AR and VR are you know cousins, but they're very different in the way people use them. They have they share some some technologies, some tools, uh, expertise, and so on. But at least today, they're used in a very different way. Obviously, VR is where you completely block yourself from the real world and you transport yourself to a different world, a fantasy world, or or a different location. And AR. uh, you know, kind of the, the ultimate form factor of AR, which is with smart glasses, is where you remain in the real world and only augment it with a little bit of, uh, of information to enhance your interaction with the real world, your understanding of the real world, and, and so on. Um, so I'm saying that just because, you know, each one of these uh, have uh, advanced in a different pace. And then, and then you have mobile AR, which is basically running AR on your smartphone, Something that, um, you know, it's not the ultimate form factor. You still have to hold this thing in front of your face, which is a little silly. Uh, but th- I think that's the best second uh, way to, uh, to introduce the masses. And, and today, you know, there's over a billion people that have experimented with mobile AR. It's
0: yeah, amazing. you said that. Yeah. I was curious. You wrote that. And I think you, you said it in one of your Medium posts. Where is that number from? What is it that they have experimented with? This one billion people—is that the people with an iPhone 11? Uh,
1: no, it's it's uh, not just iPhone. It's also um, other smartphones, Android phones, um, and there you know there are some arguments regarding the number today. Some people you know are looking for active AR users, which is different than just people that have tried it once or or a few times. But if you look at um, number of people that use first of all pokemon go which you know i think we we all know it's not the full-blown ar experience it's it's very limited but it's a way to get people outside of their home and interact with the real world in some way in in a game using some overlays on the real world Uh, then you have um snapchat which really uh made a huge bet on ar and uh, so far, it's been very successful. They, they introduced the idea of, of uh, uh, social filters, right? You, you augment your face initially with just silly things, later on with things that are much more uh, interesting, much more uh, immersed with your environment. And then Instagram, uh, copying them and uh, and getting into a, an even bigger audience. Facebook last year said that one billion people have tried their... Uh, filter AR filters so that that's one clear indication but if you look at you know the um, 600 million or so people that played Pokemon go 220 million that use snapchat um, Instagram uh, and then complementing that with what's happening in the enterprise which is kind of a whole different beast it's it's adopting AR in a very different way uh, and it's where it's 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 so uh, it's it's solving s- such critical problems in, in a much more efficient and, and uh, better way that even though those headsets are still bulky and they don't, you know, maybe uh, hold for, for a whole day of, of battery use um, and they look awkward and all that, they're still delivering so much value that enterprises are actually adopting those smart glasses much faster than we see with with consumers. I think to answer- Yeah, so there's a
0: big story about Google Enterprise Glasses, right? Versus Google Glass, which flopped. But the enterprise version seems to be finding its way into repair workers and specialized use cases. Absolutely.
1: And and you see two messages there. One is that uh, Google Glasses failed uh, mostly because of how they introduced it to the market. They introduced it to the consumers, and they weren't ready at the time. They weren't ready to have a computer on their face, a camera on their face. Uh, There's the awkward social aspect of it, and there's the uh, privacy issue where you have a camera pointing at at everything around you. And people were really not ready for that. However, at the same time, and even before that, there were a few smart glasses which were not so different than, than Google Glass, um which uh, delivered significant value for uh, for enterprises um, you know things like remote assistance, right So you're you're working somewhere you're trying to uh, to fix a machine or t- or some plumbing or or maybe an e- electronics board and you know you, you get some instructions on your smart glasses of, of kind of step by step how to solve it, but sometimes it's not enough. you need an expert to be there with you. And using the camera and the, 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 uh, the display, the near-eye display, you're able to connect to experts in the back, back office that can guide you through the process step-by-step step and help you solve it. And if you think about... Could you give book.
0: Can you give one of those glasses to Ikea, please, so that we can <laughs> actually get our book? I actually know I'm a proficient Ikea... A builder, but uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've you know been fiddling with that. I would I'd love to have a an IKEA repair you know, person.
1: You're pointing to a really interesting fact that a lot of the use cases that are currently in use in enterprise could make the transition to consumers, and, and one of them is exactly that. It's kind of remote customer uh, service or remote customer assistance. And I mean, I can think of uh, a million examples in my home where I, I try to solve something. And what I do today is, I, you know, I look on YouTube and I find a bunch of videos that tell you how to do it. But it's not always exactly the same. Uh, it's not the right angle. Uh, it doesn't guide you step by step. So you no, know,
0: and it uh, takes forever, right? So I, you, you know, I currently during this pandemic, I have been learning audio visuals. Right? So I started a podcast. I am now learning photography. I you know, I, I I know the least about photography from the outset. All of these things take forever. And you're watching these very imperfect videos that are may or may not, you know, be telling me what I need. If I had someone who was really an expert sitting there saying, Tron, you know, I see that you have a light here, you have this there, it could be extremely useful.
1: That's exactly right. And, and there are a few companies that are trying to get into that space with consumers. So, you know, they're connecting service providers that today you know, usually have a phone call where things are not really clear, so they have to come on site, spend time in, in traffic, and, uh, and it's not cost effective. But if you can do it with smart glasses or even a smartphone that allows you to show them uh, what's, what's in front of you and they can see it and even annotate on it in 3D and tell you exactly what kind of, you know, wire you have to plug in or, or pipe you have to, to remove, uh, it becomes much, much easier. And I see that as, as one of the big use cases for consumers in the future uh, when smart glasses become something that we, we can actually wear at our home.
0: Why do you say smart glasses are the perfect form factor for VR? There are many form factors, aren't there, for, for VR? So you, you talked about mobile VR and, and you're saying it's imperfect because you're holding a phone. But why? are you sort of defining it as glasses? I've uh, understood that there are other options, or at least they won't necessarily look like glasses, but do you just call them glasses or will you actually recognize them as glasses? Like they will be very similar in your mind to a Google Glass. So I think
1: the um, smart glasses, you know, is is really the ultimate factor of AR because uh, first of all, it's relatively natural. I mean, over 50% of of the world is, is wearing glasses already. Or adults are wearing glasses, so so it's not like a whole new thing that you have to get used to. Uh, but the big benefit is that it's it's always there and your hands free. So again, look at the enterprise use cases. Most of them require the uh, the operator in the field to use their hands to fix things. So you cannot hold a phone and do those things. So so that's why smart glasses uh, can become uh, much more ubiquitous when, once they you know, again, they reach a certain threshold where more people are are, uh, willing to to wear them. Uh, But you can definitely see how after smart glasses, there's the technology shrinks even further until it disappears in thin air. It could be... Well, I was
0: going to say, you know, well, there's Neuralink and stuff, but let's just talk about lenses for a a second, like, uh, you know, contact lenses. How how far away are we from putting anything computerized onto our retina?
1: So amazingly, there's already uh, a startup that uh, is developing contact lenses for AR. Uh, and they have basically the whole thing already working. Uh, you know, the display is still very na- naive, you know, very simple. Uh, but they're able to demonstrate how you can feed those contact lenses with information that is overlaid on the real world. Uh, but but I think it's still far because there's a lot of uh, limitations for that kind of uh, experience. Smart glasses today, you know, they can still look almost like regular smart glasses and have a bunch of sensors and camera and a display. By the way, it's, it's not going to be a Google Glass display, which is is not really in front of the eye. It's kind of a little bit to the top right, and yeah. it's semi-transparent, but it's um, it's not uh, uh, the the content. Is not registered in 3D on the real world, meaning that if you move your head, the content doesn't move uh, with you. Uh, so the, the 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 most important uh, smart glasses that we're seeing today are that are kind of leading the way are uh, typically waveguide technology, and they're allowing you to to you know to really be in front of your your face and and uh, insert computer graphics or, or virtual content in the real, real world in a way that is almost indistinguishable from reality. So it, fe- it feels like the virtual object is really there or the instructions are really
0: on the ground. Uh, what do you mean by waveguide? I-, I wasn't familiar with that term.
1: So waveguide is, is I mean, when it comes to near eye displays, there's different techniques to to bring that image in front of your eye. The there's, you know, transparent LCDs. Um, there's uh, direct retina projections. Which I think is is actually going to win this this war eventually, and then there's waveguides which have been around for quite a bit. I mean, probably over a decade now, uh, but now they're reaching a point where they're relatively uh, kind of wide field of view. So, you know, it's not like uh this viewing something through the uh, uh, the keyhole, but it's it's feels like it's really in front of you. Uh, but there's still still a bunch of limitations to that technology um, in a sense that. Uh, first of all, the focus focus is usually fixed at a certain distance, so that kind of breaks the illusion that the information is really in the real world. Uh, and then the field of view is still not wide enough to give you the full experience. So, uh, I'll give you an example, um, Hololens, which you know is, is uh, Microsoft's uh, AR device. It's probably one of the best, better devices out there in terms of the quality that you can get yep. there. Um, but it's still pretty, pretty big, pretty bulky. So you, you would not see yourself walking with this outside, uh, maybe just in a lab or, or in a factory where you know, it just does the job really well. So uh, on the other hand, you have companies like uh, North, which was recently acquired, um, and, and they were trying to, uh, to target the, the consumer market with glasses that look exactly like regular glasses. So all it had is a direct retina projection that uh, shoots laser uh, into your retina and paints the picture there. Uh, you don't really feel it. I mean, it's it's definitely not harmful. Um, but they, they decided to, to make it really simple so they didn't include a camera on those glasses. And that really prevents you from achieving most of the interesting use cases for smart glasses. Yeah. Uh, and they, they weren't very successful in, in that consumer market.
0: I'm, I'm curious about a few more of these uh, sort of, uh, I guess, concepts. You have come back to the term retina and retina projections. I know that in your projection, we're going to get to 2030 soon. You've written some sort of projections and I just read it before, before the podcast. Light field retina projections or LERPs. What is all that about? Why do you think this will win? What, what is that?
1: So, so this is based on technology that was actually developed in uh, Washington U- University in the early 90s. Uh, we saw the first demonstration of basically, you know, a laser that is right next to your eye. And it just like um, the old TVs were kind of painting the picture on the, uh, on the screen, here it's using this uh, laser to paint a picture on your retina. And uh, it sounds sounds a little scary, but uh, trust me, it's it's less harmful than even the, the barcode readers that you have in the super, supermarket, right? So, so it's very low intensity. Um, How are
0: you going to convince
1: people of, of that? I think you just need to wear it and, and see that it's 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 completely natural. And the benefits of that technology is that because you you paint it on the retina, you can do a lot of manipulations, like you can change the uh, the focus of the the picture you can have a full like a fully uh, like full wide field of view because you paint your entire field of vision yeah. um, and and you can also shrink it to a size that will be almost uh, invisible on regular smart regular glasses. Um, so you know all these things combined um, led me to to believe that the, this technology, uh, Will rule the, the other kind of near eye displays that we're seeing in AR, uh, mm-hmm. but you know we yet to be see, see seeing um, an actual device that that kind of delivers on the imp- these promises. But I think I don't well exactly. We so watch. we're
0: waiting for the killer application. I, I want to talk a little bit more about some startups before we go uh, to sort of the the real future. But before that. Simon Greenwald, so in his MIT graduate thesis in 2003, coined this term spatial computing. And I've noticed that for now we have been talking about AR, VR, but you, with your conference, keep talking about spatial computing. To what extent is all of this truly spatial? Or is spatial still kind of an imposition because we're not really yet talking? space altering things. And this goes into some stuff that I hope we can get into, which is, you know, when will real virtual presence actually happen? And this is a post COVID question because I wouldn't really care too much whether it was five years or 20 years from now, had it not been for the fact that I'm stuck here and I want to meet you and I want to meet other people and I want to make it more real. And I want to get out of this Zoom mania where we just keep looking at flat screens all the time. So, so now it's become a pressing question. You've become the man of the day.
1: Totally, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, the, first of all, you're pointing uh, one of the, the main thorns of, of this uh, technology that there are so many terms. And every year you have people inventing new terms that are even more confusing. Uh, so, so there's that's kind of a whole rant that I, I can spend an hour on. But, but I think, you know, if you look at this new wave of technology and how it's different than the previous wave, I think the main difference is that if the previous wave was, you know, you, you kind of look at computing on, on a flat screen, you know, on a computer or a mobile device, but still flat. So it's, it's uh, taking 3D information, uh, real-life information, and projecting it on a two-dimensional screen. And that's not fully intuitive for humans. I mean, we we learn how to use a mouse, we learn how to use touch, but it's still not like interacting with the real world. And with AR and VR and related uh, technologies, it's it's, uh, spatial in the sense that you move in the world and you interact with things just like you would do in the real world. So kind of like that 1968 demo where you had an object and you look at it from different angles and it would behave just like, Uh, a real object, um, that's kind of what really separates it. And and there's a bunch of things that come with it. It's not just the display, it's also the interaction. You want to be able to sense the environment, to perceive what's happening around you in a three-dimensional sense, right? So you want to understand shapes and objects in the room and understand what they are. Mm. Uh, And and that makes it spatial. And then the other thing is spatial sound, which we're starting to see a lot of that coming out uh, even with the uh, the Apple um, iPods Pro, where uh, they're now introducing spatial sound, so you can actually hear if where it's coming in the room, and, and that's another important aspect of of spatial computing because you know you want to be uh, immersed in, in a spatial perspective with all your senses, not just the eyesight, uh, but sound and touch and and uh, and haptics and and all these kind of things. So. So that's kind of why we, I think spatial computing is probably the best term to describe as an umbrella term to describe this this new uh, paradigm and how it's different than what we've seen before.
0: You also talk about uh, spy or SPAI. What, what what is that about? When you add AI to to spatial, what do you what do you what do you get? So that, that's kind of
1: a tongue-in-cheek for that specific presentation uh, I wanted to find a cute name uh, but it's there's an underlying message here which is spatial computing will be merging with AI it's already merging with it I mean you, you cannot see any uh, AR application or VR application that doesn't really make use of, of machine learning uh, and you know it's something that like an advanced that we've seen only in the last few years, where machine learning all of a sudden made computer vision a million times better than it was before. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's reflected in, in some of the, the applications and demos you see today. Uh, simple things like you know, coloring your, your hair, something that until maybe two years ago was uh, look was looking really clunky and and weird. And now you have some apps that you can find on on any smartphone, that uh, color your hair in a perfect way, and that's thanks to to machine learning. That you know, you teach the computer, you teach the algorithm, all the different uh, options of you know how hair looks, and from that, it can deduct how to overlay it with with the correct color in real time uh, with using those those uh, AI applications. So, spatial computing and, and AI are in in dispen- I mean, uh, so integrated in the future that you cannot really tell them apart. And and that's kind of why I decided to call call it SPY, as in spatial computing and
0: artificial intelligence combined. Ori, what are two or three startups that people should look at, maybe not just to invest, but potentially also just to get inspired and get their imagination running about what's possible over the next uh, three, five, seven, 10 years? That's that's
1: a, a tough question for me because you know I uh, I've seen probably Well, 5, you've made 000... 15
0: investments so you m- you must know yeah, like some of I've them I've seen
1: probably about 5000 AR and VR companies in the last few years uh, and you know since my my real passion is about kind of advancing the whole ecosystem I feel like you know they're all great um, And that's
0: fine that's fine I I accept that I accept that but um, so let me ask it let me then take away the need for you to say that they're better. Just uh, And I didn't mean it that way, actually. So that's why I didn't say investable. I'm more interested in, give us some examples of things that are stretching the mind. Yeah. yeah. Sure. That's I mean, an easier question. To
1: some, some investors say, you know, we haven't seen really huge exits in, in AR and VR. We haven't seen big companies or unicorns. And in fact, when you look at it, Uh, Snapchat and Niantic Labs, the the creator of Pokemon Go, are the two AR unicorns that we have out there. Um, Yes, they're not only about AR, but AR is a key part of their strategy and and how they differentiate themselves from from others. And these companies are worth billions. I mean, Niantic is definitely a few billions, billions, and Snap is, I think, in the 30 or 40 billion market cap right now. So these companies are uh, probably the most uh, amazing AR startups out there right now. Um, but if you look at those who are really innovating in in new ways and, like you said, stretching the mind and, and doing unique things, uh, I would have to say that you know one of the companies that was uh, incubated with Super Ventures, with with our fund, uh, is called Six dai or Six degreesai and they demonstrated for the first time how you can use a regular smartphone to walk around the room and really fast scan it in 3D and be able to reconstruct that environment in, in 3D so that you can uh, overlay it with augmented reality content
0: that and sounds a little iron man to
1: me that's 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 already sci-fi right
0: i mean if when you, you truly can do that can do time,
1: it looks like like sci-fi um, Yes. And, and then they took it even further and uh, went for crowdsourcing. So you could have multiple people with smartphones, which, which is kind of how we envision the, the near future of AR. Many people walk, walk, walking around with AR devices and scanning their environment. And then you take all that information and uh, create eventually a 3D map uh, of the entire world, you know, indoor and outdoor and anywhere people go with, with AR devices. So that, that company was acquired by Niantic, uh, which was good for for the startup and and the investors but uh, kind of a little sad to see that you know you're not gonna see an independent air company grow to become you know the next Facebook or the next uh, Google uh, so so that but that's that's definitely a really interesting example um, so, so that,
0: we're gonna we're gonna yes yeah, so do you have one more maybe
1: yeah I mean m- maybe just uh, um, on, on the smart glasses side itself um, it's... You know, a few years ago, people started saying there's no startup that can actually build smart glasses at this point. It's it requires too many resources, too much funding. You know, we've seen what happened to to Magic Leap, which had the, the, it was the most funded startup in the history, uh, but it's still a kind of flattering. You know, not not really able to 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 move ahead. And, and uh, the main contenders are still, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, Microsoft, and maybe uh, one of the Chinese companies. Um, and, um, uh, and then within all that kind of message that it's, it's too big for a startup, you see uh, a young Chinese startup called Nreal, just started a couple of years ago. And they—they're now delivering uh, really cool smart glasses. They almost look like regular glasses. They're intended for both professionals and consumers. And uh, you know, it's a—it's a nice form factor. It's high quality. It's a high quality display. Uh, and it's kind of defying all these people that are saying, you know, you got to be a hundred billion dollar company to be successful in that. So that's—that's so that's remarkable, I think, by
0: itself. Wow. I'm, I, I want to move to the future, but I have one more question about sort of where we are right now. Um, a lot of innovation these days can, uh, you know, sort of has to go via governments because they uh, either need extra funding that's more long term, which governments tend to give uh, research funding, or because they touch upon privacy issues and other things that eventually will be regulated. How do you see the AR? VR slash spatial computing industry from that respect. You mean from- Is it a dangerous industry that needs to be regulated right now? Or is it, are we in an experimental phase for, for a long time? You know, obviously AI in and of itself, you know, is a discussion, but, but you know, the spatial aspect, is that problematic or does it require any kind of vigilance from governments? Yeah, well,
1: you know, it, it's probably the biggest um, concern that uh, that I think the industry has regarding the ability to really uh, get you know massive adoption of, of this technology. Uh, but it's like you know, it's like uh, any technology since fire, like Ray, Ray Kurzweil said, uh, can be used for promise or peril, right? And the same right. applies for for AR, except it's a bit it's a bit more. Um, invasive and much more personal than anything we've seen before. Because when you have a camera that constantly points at what you're doing, uh, capturing it and analyzing it you know, to, to give you some benefit, but still, it's still capturing all this information. What we see today with Facebook or, or other social apps that are kind of tracking your behavior and kind of where you become the product, in this future, it could be much even much much worse, and, and that's why you know since the the very beginning, I think many leaders in the industry have been warning about the need to first of all protect privacy and, and really uh, invest a lot in in ethics or kind of making sure that this technology is applied for the good of of humanity and uh, and not to uh, to uh, to kill it because it doesn't have so ory
0: the the two obvious use cases where, where you'd want to be vigilant right uh, uh post covid is kind of online education i mean suddenly my 7 year old uh, you know has a, a teacher and and you know uh, 10 15 kids that are looking into her Uh, You know, bedroom and whatever else the camera is pointing to at the time, uh, and and, you know, with a much more advanced uh, AR version that 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 so that schooling and, and, and online education suddenly has an eye into your home that they never had, which is you know, good and bad. And then I guess there are other use cases as well, where if you just think about the proverbial Zoom meeting, right? Or any any you know, business conference, whilst it would be fantastic. And I am looking forward to this day when I can feel like we are truly having a beer together, or we at least are exchanging something more personal than, than, than you kind of can in this uh, sort of like first generation video feed it's also slightly problematic. You, you know, imagine I had all kinds of trackers and you could see that, you know, I don't know, my pulse was going up and, you know, I was sweating or, you know, whatever other types of measures you could start measuring just from from my computer onto, onto me. Yeah, I mean, do I really want that?
1: Well, first, I think you're, you're touching on probably the, the killer app for AR and VR, which is remote collaboration, the ability to... To be to to be to feel like you're in the room with someone else although you're uh, remotely collaborating um, and you know it could be in AR where you still see your room and you see other people kind of uh, holograms of other people around you or it could be in VR where you're you know transported completely into a different location so so some combination of the two and, and by the way there's a few startups that are actually, Delivering delivering on kind of the first steps towards that today, like a company called Spatial. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, privacy there becomes uh, a big potential problem. And what what we're seeing, you know, the smart companies are integrating privacy into the core of their product. And I think that's really um, something that every every single company in the space uh, should do. So things like, you know, when, yes, you have a camera pointing at at the space and you can see everything in it, but you only use it uh, for the AR experience, right? So you just use it to to kind of map the space and understand the shape so you can place content in it. Uh, But that information only stays on the device or maybe it's completely encrypted in a way that cannot be reverse engineered. So if somebody takes, you know, uh, Captures this information on on the net, you know, with five G, it's, it's going to become uh, a much more uh, kind of natural way to, to kind of offload a lot of the computing to the cloud. Uh, so if you try to kind of uh, capture that information uh, in the in the network, uh, you, you get just garbled information. So you cannot really uh, spy on on anyone or get information that is not supposed to be shared. So so that's kind of one one thing. But there there's a lot of things that uh, companies need to, to kind of consider when it comes to, to privacy and, and ethics. And there's even a, a nonprofit organization called XRSI, which is focused exactly on that, on, on kind of ensuring that, uh, that this industry uh, puts a lot of attention on privacy and diversity and ethics and, and make sure that you know, we're, we're going to use this technology for good and, and not for bad.
0: That is important. Look, we've been dancing around the future uh, for a while here now. I, I wanted to jump in, and you have actually done a little bit of an exercise about how the world would look in twenty thirty. You did a bit of a forecast. I'm curious, what did you was you, were you just kind of using all of the data that you have from from all of these data sources, or was there a structured way that you you built this forecast? And number two, w- w- you know, w- what did you see? For instance shared presence will that happen in 2030 when will we have it and what would it look like what does it look like what is shared presence and what are some of the other things that you predicted or or, or at least kind of painted scenarios on
1: yeah predictions are, are tricky and yeah. uh, I think many people have, have made a lot of predictions over the last decade that didn't come through and you
0: get a lot of headlines but then you're wrong <laughs> you
1: know? I mean I've made some some really wrong predictions. So, so that's why I didn't call it actual predictions. I, I, it was sort of, a, again, tongue in cheek in, in, in a way that uh, it was described. It, it's as if I received the message from my future self in 2030, um, kind of jumping over all the, um, the, uh, the technology barriers and, and cultural barriers that we see today and it's actually where in 2030, uh, I think a lot of people would agree uh, AR and VR are, are kind of commonplace. Uh, so I, know I don't know exactly how it's going to look. I don't know exactly what companies will actually lead that. That's, n- that's where I'm kind of not trying to predict. But I think if you look at the, first of all, the world trends, you know, the, the world in 2030 is going to look very different than today. Uh, you, you're going to see, you know, like half of all the corporations and all colleges are going to be gone and, and about a third of all jobs will disappear by then. And, you know, not to, not to talk about like fires and storms, which will only increase and, you know, climate change will be a, uh, a true crisis by that time. So so the world is going to look very differently. Um, and then you look at, you know, the trajectory of, of AR and, and a combination of supporting technologies. I mean, it's not just AR, you know. It, there's the displays. There's the uh, the hardware, you know, chips and, and processing power, battery. There's the, the quantum internet, which is predicted to, to happen by 2030. Six um, G, so you know, five G will be old by then, right? So,
0: do you really think quantum internet will be here by 2030? That's a stretch. <laughs> I'm going to tell you as a prediction that's not going to happen. I I, I want to go on record to tell you right now. If if we have quantum internet in 2030, I will. Well, I'll buy you uh, 50 beers. Well, <laughs> Fifty. Right. I mean,
1: well, first of all, um, I, I I'm not going to argue on that, but I mean, it, it's just an example of, of trends that are already showing results today, and uh, at least there are some people that predict that these technology will. will Converge by by twenty thirty, but even if you look at just at, at AR and VR, I think there are certain things that most people in the industry believe will will happen by then. We don't know exactly how, but again, the main exercise for for this was not to to make predictions, but to paint a map of how uh, of, of where we want to go, where we want to get, and then work together as an ecosystem to find the, the right path on how we can achieve the, that, that mm-hmm. goal. I mean, you have um, Moore's Law, which helped drive uh, advancements in personal computing over the last 40, 50 years, and that helped align the industry. So I'm looking for something like that, where you know we know what's the end result that we want to achieve in terms of the experience, in terms of, of the impact that it will have on, on the world, and now let's see how we get there. Mm-hmm. So... To answer the the, the the second part of the question of of what I, I uh, found or or at least how I envision that word in twenty thirty, um, so so first is something you touched on which is the spy and LERPs, two really funny acronyms, um, yes. but they're really encompassing the the extent of the air technology at the time, which is spatial computing integrated with AR with AI, where you have. Uh, world understanding around you. So this technology can really know where you are, what you're looking at, what's in front of you and be able to integrate virtual content in that environment in a seamless way. Hmm. And then the second part is the form factor of not the form factor, but the, the displays to bring this additional content or augmented content into your retinas, the light light field retina projection that, uh, it's already showing today that it can be, that the content can be indistinguishable from natural vision. Hmm. And I think at that point, you can really deliver on a lot of the, the promises that uh, many people in the AR industry, including myself, uh, have made over the years. Because uh, you really over, overcame a lot of the uh, the barriers that we're seeing today. Hmm. Um, and, and then- I, I have
0: a, a question. Uh, well, you know, you finish your, your argument, but let me just ask my question. We talked about shared presence and what that might mean. Um, what about the blurred boundaries between truth and fiction? I mean, you studied cinema. Um, will virtual simulations sort of be true for all practical purposes by 2030 in the sense that you know you watch right now a 3D movie in hollywood and you clearly see that they're trying to do spatial and it's like maybe slightly better here and there and then at other parts of the movie it's not so it's clearly sort of fake in the re- it fails the turing test it fails the reality test but already deep fakes in terms of photoshopped images and kind of like simple movies where you have uh, you know president trump or other famous people baked into some scenario and you can well there was a presidential ad right now right with fauci saying something and you you cut out a little bit of what the, what he said and suddenly it appears that he said something which he claims he didn't say himself to what extent is this going to drastically change and be not just deep fake, but it will be, for all practical purposes, true. It'll be experienced as true. Like, you, you know, as in like virtual reality will feel real. I went through this in VR. I feel damaged. You know, I saw a murder in VR. I'm equally damaged as if I saw a murder in real life. I mean, I don't know. That's maybe an extreme case. But no, I, I tell that, me, what's this going right. to look like? Yeah, I mean What's that, that example
1: like? is totally right, uh, and, and I think you know the the uh, kind of the 2030 world that I described was very optimistic in many ways in terms of how it, it had a, you know a positive impact on the world on anything from you know lower employment to uh, lower costs for healthcare to uh, reduction of, you know in waste and and uh, kind of really supporting the, the climate uh, change fight. But the one thing that is probably the, the most pessimistic, um, i not going to call it prediction, but kind of situation in, in that 2030 world is exactly around that. Um, because, you know, we'll, we'll be really good at uh, placing virtual content in the real world in a way that it's indistinguishable from reality. That makes kind of the uh, the fake news issues that we see today as as uh, minor Ace. compared to what it will yeah. be in 2030. Where right. everything right. you see is questionable. The, you know, right. seeing is believing
0: will, will not be uh, true anymore. Right. And you have and to have even, this enormous counter system of source control, which is like, who made this? Who has touched this? What is the transparency? Like who and what machines and humans have touched this footage from inception to Right. You, you have to do like you do with diamonds, right? You ingrain them with like invisible kind of like diamond ink and this and that so you can kind of track them. Yeah, I
1: mean, you see that, you know, for
0: every uh,
1: deep fake demo, you have a company that is focusing on identifying and, and recognizing those deep fakes, right? So there's going to be this uh, major uh, battle between truth and, and fiction uh, where people will try to, to fool you with uh, kind of fake information. And, and think about it, when it, when it's on, on your smart glass and you walk around the street and you see things that are, you're not sure if they're there or not, That that's going to be... Well, this
0: reminds me of the last Blade Runner movie, right? There was a lot of those things.
1: Yeah, and, and there, you know, it was kind of sort of easy to uh, identify things that are holograms. They had, you know, this pinkish neon light. Uh, well, but, they did that,
0: yeah. But you could imagine that yeah, but it can it actually it totally won't real. have that.
1: And then when it's totally real, like you know, like yeah, in Blade Runner, uh, where where his girlfriend looks totally real, right? Um, that becomes a major challenge, I think, for humanity as a whole. Just kind of this daily battle of trying to understand what's real and what's not. I think that well, that's and something wouldn't
0: a lot of an people have an answer for that? Wouldn't, Ori, a lot of people start preferring virtual reality at that point? Because, I mean, my life is hard at times. So at least, you know, in the, your optimistic scenario, I'd wouldn't want to go in and and go into a game that was kind of uh, gamed in, in, in a positive sense. I mean, this whole dystopian stuff that you're bringing out, I don't know, I'm sure if, or, or like actual reality, like looking out the window and seeing a destroyed environment, God forbid, you know, with a uh, cataclysmic proportion, uh, people might want to seriously retreat into VR.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's one of the... Um debates you see in the in our industry where you have some people that believe that VR will be the main way you interact with content where you completely block yourself and transport to a different world. And others like like myself will believe that at least a big portion of the day, you'll still want to be in reality and only augment it with additional information. And uh, I'm not I'm not sure you know which way it's gonna go, but my feeling is that humans for the last million years have been trained uh, to interact with the real world. And, and I think it's it's ingrained in our DNA and it will always be something that we, we need to do. So are we gonna have you know, a few hours at night where we go in a completely different world and, and where, again, fantasy or, or different places around the world? Absolutely. But I think for the, the big part of the day, we'll still wanna be in the real world, interact with real people and with real things and places. Um, just because I think it's it's our nature but that, that scenario where some people will be so um, I don't know if afraid is the word or just uh, intimidated by the real world with all this additional content they may be completely isolating themselves in, in a virtual world where they feel more maybe more comfortable or, or more secure So yeah. that, that could, I mean that's the play, the ready player one scenario where uh, everybody is, is just having their good life in the VR
0: headset, because the real world sucks. I'm actually with you at the end of the day, but I just think that some people, and in some situations, uh, it becomes easier to rely on that as an escape. And the question is simply, you know, can we regulate that? Can we you know, I mean, it like, it's like any vice you have, I guess, because it's like, it's great when you're doing it, but then you realize you're caught in some sort of pattern and you get darker and darker into this uh, thing that whatever you're kind of doing. So, So, well, I would like to think that humanity is a little more resistant than that. We aren't, you know, purely virtual species but that's maybe my uh, my second to last question because I want to I want to ask you how you track all this thing so I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about that but you know it strikes me that a lot of the visionaries in in kind of in your field they really have and even the, the transhumanists for instance they have this vision that this is somehow extremely desirable to to to, to create this world that is, full of AR, full of VR, full of everything. And with a intelligence that makes us beyond human and makes us live forever somehow virtually, or at least have that as a very real escape. And they see it as something inevitable, positive, you know, yada, yada. You can go into kind of the um, singularity argument and all that stuff. Is that just one version? And then you can completely have a industrial AR perspective, and you think there's going to be kind of real and sensible uses of, is, is, is the industry basically going to split up into kind of the the wacky, crazy uh, perspective, which you know is going to have a lot of moderates as well. But there's going to be this fringe element that really is completely on a quest to make us virtual beings, as if that was something good. And I, I'm imposed perhaps saying maybe it's not or or am I taking this too far um, even the VR addicts you know in in terms of the visionaries in in this space don't really want this world to be 100% virtual I mean you know these people well I what's what's your I guess <laughs> you know all of them you know the the extremists on, on either side of this debate
1: absolutely so, I mean, listen, the uh, transhumanism, I think today is still facing a few significant barriers, ethical barriers, technological barriers. But, but I think on one hand, there's no doubt that at some point in the future, it could be 50, 100 years, whatever, w- will become kind of a new species that uh, integrate with technology in a seamless way or, you know, be, being cyborgs. But, but I think that's, that's really um, scary for most people, definitely today, So I think, in essence, AR could be the um, alternative, non-intrusive way to get us to that point. Because, you know, you basically enhance or augment your senses uh, in a natural way. You know, it doesn't have to be invasive into your your body or or your brain. And it still allows you to to become more powerful. You know, we we call it super ventures because it gives you superpowers um, just by augmenting all your senses. So, so I think that, that that's kind of one part of the the answer that it kind of gives humanity uh, uh, you know a uh, more moderate transition towards the the far future that some people are talking about you know
0: where again when we become new species uh, do, you, do you think we uh, need this if you look at Elon Musk's argument he says we have to merge with AI before AI takes over so that but that's kind of the invasive sort of transhumanist argument is one, one camp of the debate, but another version closer, perhaps to what I'm reading you on is to say, we have to become smarter because, you know, it's just logical that we would want to augment ourselves with the technologies we have available, but there's a boundary to be drawn. Where is that boundary? And is that boundary going to be gradually pushed? or is there an ethical boundary that we should not cross?
1: That's that's probably above my pay grade, that answer. <laughs> but it's but I mean, I think it, it, it's definitely gonna be gradual. Um, you know, we're not gonna be overnight uh, cyborgs. Uh, so so again, AR is kind of giving us a way to, to do it in, in a more gradual way. And I think it can give us a lot of the benefits of, of uh, cyborg type experience without being invasive. Just, you know, using smart glasses and sensors and, uh, and all these kind of things that allow us to, to become not just smarter, but to understand and feel the world and what's happening on a much higher level than we can today. Uh, you know, kind of like a cat can walk in the room and immediately uh, know exactly uh, how it looks, even without looking, You're just kind of sensing the whole environment. I think, you know, that's kind of one trait that humans could have with with AR and, and sensor technologies and, and the same for, for many other things. You know, it's it's something that we will uh, we will kind of have these leap, uh, leap forward in terms of our abilities to to interact with the real world and, and with others. Uh, and then, you know, should we block the next step? I don't know. I think that's uh, it's probably inevitable, like a lot of these you know, innovations. Uh, yeah. The question is, are we going to be ready when, when the technology is ready to, to mm-hmm. adopt it in a, in a, in a process? So, way.
0: Ori, you are one of the most ready people. How do you advise my listeners to become at least a little bit more ready? I mean, they can't all go back to the you know, way back machine to 2010 and, and go into your shoes. What should they do? What should I do? How do I track this field? I can call you every morning or every week or every month and see, or you know, what's happened in the field of, of AR. But what are the efficient ways of, of actually tracking this field? You know, the good news is that
1: there's plenty of amazing information out there. I mean, if you w- when I used to search for AR, I, I got you know like maybe one page of results of different white papers in universities. Today, you get um, anything from. Uh, you know, analysts uh, creating reports and uh, you know, new technologies being introduced, new use cases. It's there's a lot of great information, and you know, just to tout my, my own horn, one of the best sources is with the AWE community, with, with the events, the meetups. We have the largest collection of YouTube videos, uh, on you know, AR and VR for, from the last 10 years. We have you know, new newsletters that can keep you up to date. So, so. You know, for me, you know, I, every day I, I look out and I try to meet and uh, learn about new companies and new technologies, but not everyone can do it. So, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, the articles, the videos, uh, the newsletters can, can really help you kind of summarize what's, what's happening and, uh, and get a handle of, of because, you know, it's not like you can do AR. You, you want to choose what you want to do within AR. There's so many different aspects. You know, it's, it's a full ecosystem already. Uh, from you know chips that accelerate your machine learning algorithms to sensors that can see through walls, through uh, you know uh, brain computer interfaces that are still not invasive, but but can uh, use the, the the waves in your brain to to kind of guide uh, an experience um, to uh, tools. There's so many new kinds of tools, anywhere from you know 3D mapping to uh, sound spatial sound uh, creation world building um, and and then on, on top of it of course you know, have various industry solutions so you know if you're coming from a certain vertical you can probably find a bunch of information about how AR can apply to your industry. Hmm. So, so I think in that sense the there's wealth of information out there and it's very specialized so you can actually pretty easily find information you need. Um, maybe just to mention a couple of other sources, if you're more on the enterprise, AR side of things, Um, the area AREA is a great uh, resource for case studies of you know some of the biggest companies out there, and uh, EWTS uh, is probably the best event for enterprise uh, computing out there. So so these are just a few of the examples. Um, Perfect. But and 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 then of course you know we have. kind of publications that are focused on specific verticals in, in AR and VR. You know, some are focused on healthcare and others on training or education or, again, industrial applications. So uh, I think it's, it's much easier to find information than it was 10 years ago. Maybe it's too hard to find because, I mean, not too hard to find. It's too hard to find what you need within this plethora of, of uh, information out there.
0: Well, for sure. Or
1: to uh, follow me on Twitter, and yes, and reach out to me uh, over email if you want to kind of chat or or get some pointers. Um, I'm always available at Ori at AugmentedReality.org.
0: Ori, I thank you so much. This has been for me very fascinating. It's a it's a world that suddenly is coming so near and we haven't even really touched the COVID word and we're going to stop it there and we'll come back and talk about that. I think that we're going to be talking about that for for years as well, but it has obviously accelerated it. And I know you are deeply into that argument, but I think we've we've talked for a good while. This has been fantastic. I thank you for your time. I um, wish you uh, well, and I hope that you will come back.
1: Of course. Thank you, Tron, for the wonderful conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. And hopefully uh, it will help a few more people to, to get into the
0: space. Yeah.
1: Oh, I think so. Future.
0: I'm I'm maybe I'll get into the space. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ori. Alright, thank you, Tron. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. You have just listened to episode 54 of the Futurized Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of augmented reality. Our guest was Ori Inbar, the F- CEO and founder of augmentedreality.org. In this conversation, we talk about community building and the no longer so embryonic AR-VR space, the emergence of spatial computing, the Augmented Reality Expo. We discuss AR-VR venture capital, exciting and emerging use cases and form factors, market size, mobile AR, and COVID's impact on remote tech. We explored the world in 2030 and the threats that the world is facing. My takeaway is that augmented reality has come a long way and is no longer fringe technology. And the COVID moment has made progress in the field a global tech priority. As for VR, the community is growing, but developing true killer apps will take time. Maybe a good thing, because we are not really ready for what is to come. Will we evolve into a virtual species? Neither Ori nor I think so at this point. Ask us in 30 years, though. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.